namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa bhutang dhammang sankhang namasami so um Today is the, uh, this is the 24th year of these reflections on gratitude to parents. And this uh, word gratitude is very, uh, has in- incredible kind of depth in, Buddhist, uh, in the Buddhist world because uh, it's our ability, this human ability, one of our virtuous, beautiful qualities is it's gratitude. It makes our life, if we feel grateful, we have that sense of gratitude for the goodness uh, that, say, of our parents, of our teachers, of um, people in general, then we have, this generally increases the, the joy of our existence. And uh, so, William Blake, it says, gratitude is heaven itself. So I've always t- contemplated that. I'm a great fan of William Blake, the, the poet, who found this is a... Yeah, I think he was a, probably a Buddhist in his heart. <laughs> I probably didn't know anything about Buddhism. <laughs> But it is, the Buddha's teaching, it's about the way things are. So it's not like a, a kind of individual discovery. It's not a personal teaching. It's, it's the kind of result of observing, of witnessing, observing how nature really works, the laws of nature, and how happiness arises and ceases. And, and then the, the nature of this realm uh, human realm, planetary life, it's a solar system. We're all connected in this uh, mystery of the solar system, the sun and moon, the stars, the galaxies, the, uh, and then planet Earth itself, and then the uh, movements and changes of seasons and the earth, fire, water and elements, the whole whole lot is a kind of mystery or a miracle. And being human then is, is uh, our ability, you know, we have this, this rare kind of birth as a human individual on this planet. And of course you hear about, you know, modern scientists and, and they're trying to find out is there life on other planets in outer space? You know, in the terms of what we conceive of, and such as our human existence, the planet that we live on, could we go and live on Mars or Jupiter or some other galaxy? But what we know is that this is this is the the place that we're at. We're here and now, uh, and we're feeling the the this uh, intense uh, experience of having a human form in a mysterious universe that is uh, continuously changing. It's it's the experience of impermanence and change. So 
So we, you know, we have a lot of fear and a, about the, this realm that we live in. We don't understand it, don't understand ourselves very well, so we, and we don't know what's beyond, just the limitation, say, of our own experience. Not to mention what's going on on Mars or Venus or other planets. <clears throat> we can imagine, we can uh, create, you know, fantasies about it, we can just deny any possibility but the reality is we don't really know. And that's a kind of knowing, you know, a, a powerful sense of knowing, not knowing, rather than not knowing in, in a kind of just uh, personal, ignorant way we think of not knowing. And this is the humbling result of contemplating our existence as a human individual because we can uh, create ourselves, we, can, we have this kind of tendency, conceit sometimes, arrogance, to think we are the ultimate creation, or you know, even the, you know, the megalomania of thinking I'm God, or I'm the supreme creator. I mean, mad, various madnesses tend to create this illusion of being all-powerful. But when we really get right down to it, we, we don't, we're not very powerful at all. Increasing age is harder to get up on this high seat. <laughs> and uh, just to leap up with alacrity. I used to advise uh, meditation retreats was to uh, encourage the meditators to, when the alarm rang in the morning, leap up with alacrity. I can't do that. <laughs> so the, the age also is humbling because it, it does, uh, you know, it takes that that conceit, you have to eat your word so many times in this life, the kind of confidence and arrogant statements that I used to make as I get older. <laughs> I realize, <laughs> and, you know, how much I've learned as a Buddhist monk. Well, this is the 44th Vasa, but the real insight is not knowing. Knowing, not knowing but knowing uh, in a way that isn't uh, put in personal terms, but recognizing the limitation that, that I have in this form, as this human body, <clears throat> its limitations and its tendencies, and also the, the personal, you know, inheritance, my ancestral inheritance, genes, DNA, whatever, plus the, the tendencies that I have on the individual level, my emotional habits and, and uh, virtues and vices. But on, on a day of gratitude, where you think of, you know, I think of my own mother and father. Now, they passed away over 20 years ago, so thinking of them with intense gratitude and love because it was through them that I could manifest as a human individual and then I had this opportunity to uh, meet the Buddha or the teachings of the Buddha, chance to live the holy life and uh, it was, uh, and this has been a very good life. When I look back on my life I feel a gratitude for all the, the uh, 
wonderful opportunities I've received from being born to the parents that I had to the present moment, the uh, monastic training, the uh, Lumpur Cha in Thailand, and then the, for the past 34 years living in England. So when I think of England, I think uh, I have this ex ex feeling of gratitude arising because my life here has been a very good one. <clears throat> and also it's a country that I feel you know, has given, uh, has allowed me to live in this traditional style as a Buddhist monk in a, in a European country uh, that isn't Buddhist country, but yet has this tolerance and this respect for other religions to where living as a Buddhist monk has never been any real problem or difficulty living here in this country. So these are ways of reflecting to, to develop and cultivate this sense of gratitude. Now the cultural background isn't one of gratitude. It's about the American conditioning of my generation was not being grateful but complaining and criticizing. <laughs> so, so, you know, that my generation, we were remember starting university in 1951 and then it, <clears throat> we were all quite clever youthful types that that studied psychology read Freud and Jung and developed uh, you know these uh, attitudes uh, psychological attitudes about how uh, this, the problems that one has has in life is due to the, the lack of wisdom or problems that one received, mixed messages or dysfunctional attitudes of the family or the society. Or it was, I was brought up as a Christian, but there was also very fashionable to be an atheist, to deny the validity of any religion. It was all, uh, you know, like for the archaeological museum. Might be interesting to study as if, you know, like some ancient culture. But we actually in the 1950s thought that religion was, was passé on the way out. And that the modern, the great achievement of mankind, of humankind, was modern science. So that's the, the ultimate attainment of the human, human race. So not to dismiss that, there's a, you know, the ability that, the, that goes into that kind of intelligent manipulation of conditioned phenomena. But when you really uh, have the opportunity to, to practice meditation in this Buddhist way, when you begin to look at yourself and the world around you in a different way than through the cultural fashions, biases of, of the time, uh, because it's a very ancient teaching, it's not modern, new age, uh, clever kind of thinking or intellectuality, but it is a, a real sense of investigating in a way that, that uh, is not part of a cultural expectation. So like modern science, is call it empirical science, we, we tend to look at things outwardly and, and observe uh, and investigate uh, objects of our senses, what we see or 
hear, smell, taste, touch. We develop the thinking skills to, to you know, to log, to reason and uh, analyze. <clears throat> but in uh, the Buddhist practice, it's getting to the real source. So the the science really is starting from pure awareness, ground zero, in other words, rather than coming from some some uh, theory or idea, no matter how logical, reasonable, or scientific it might be, uh, the Buddha takes this science because Buddhism is really a science in the in the true sense of knowledge, of profound knowledge. It it isn't like empirical. You're not observing from a position, uh, starting from me as some scientist with a rational mind trying to prove a theory. But mindfulness is actually getting to, to the very source, to the empty, pure state of awareness. And this is, of course, is, is very clearly um, spelled out in, in the Buddhist teaching. It's a very clear and exact teaching, getting to the source of where everything begins. So this past week, the monastic community here has been devoting themselves to this practice as a community because we're all, the whole monastic community's aim is to recognize that pure source consciousness awareness that is beyond cultural biases, even religious perceptions or anything else, but it's certainly recognizable through paying attention, through listening, observing. So it's not a kind of fantasy or a proposition we're trying to prove, but the reality that we uh, may have never really understood, recognized, even though it's with us all the time. So this human birth is, is a very fortunate one. This opportunity that we have is, allows us to do this. The, the human creature, this species, human beings, we have this reflective mind. We might call it a Buddha mind. Or I mean, they're not just conscious forms with karmic um, uh, conditions motivating us. We are that also, but the gift of our humanity is we can reflect on ourselves, we can observe. We're not just uh, mam- mammals operating from, uh, you know, just the habit of conditioning, because the condition we do have, we can observe it, reflect on it, see it, know it. And through mindfulness, recognize pure consciousness, you know, that isn't, isn't about... Uh, the, an individual person, or even about a species. Contemplate consciousness as is, is we share this with everything. That there's one consciousness and many uh, conditions that manifest. So when we, when we contemplate it in this way, we feel this sense of connection to the whole universe that we can't possibly feel in any realistic way uh, or know through the identity we have with our separateness. You know, and I just think of myself only on, on a personal level, 
uh, as this creature sitting here as opposed to you, then there's always this sense of separation. Uh, this is m the reality of, of, of a personality. You're, I'm this person, you're somebody else. Uh, what have we in common? We might, you know, have, a, we, have a, we have an interest in Buddhism, we share, we like um, football. <laughs> well, we may even argue about that. Maybe you, you like the team that I despise. So then we can get into quarreling and war. But, but on the conscious level, isn't it? It's one. And the, then mindfulness is the gate to this totality within the rest, restrictions and limitations that we all have as human individuals. I just think how and that is like magic or mir miraculous because in, in the limitation of human thought you know, we, we conceive ourselves in such limited ways and bind ourselves to all kinds of, of fears, anxieties, worries, problems, difficulties. <clears throat> and, and our whole experience of life can be just going from one condition, one problem to the next. Without learning, without awakening, without recognizing the gift of our humanity. So then with gratitude to parents, I... I reflect on my own parents who uh, gave me birth. I was very fortunate in having uh, good, kind parents. Uh, so, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't have a lot of, uh, to complain about, you know, I just, I did manage during my Freudian period and Jungian period <laughs> to, you know, begin to criticize my mother and father, just like everyone else, because that was the fashionable thing to be doing. And then you wondered, you know, if my parents had, you know, never made a mistake, uh, then I thought, you know, then I wouldn't suffer so much. It's because uh, they, you know, they gave me mixed messages. They didn't always, uh, you know, were not always uh, the kind of parents that one would fantasize about having perfectly mature, well-developed, understanding, and completely devoted to my happiness. <laughs> because when you're a child, you think, you know, you should, you're the, the center of every, of the world. <clears throat> then in this life also, the, the uh, being born in the United States, you know, it, it was, uh, uh, you know, a country where you were given a lot of freedom to do what you wanted. You didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, restrictions, uh, boundaries or demands. It was a time of uh, individual expression, of, of, of uh, the ego being the kind of ultimate thing to develop, to self-assertion, self-improvement making things better, being progressive. Uh, <clears throat> you know, we were idealistic. The United States is, uh, is, is, you know, it's a country that was created out of ideals. So it, we're brought up to think in terms of how things should be, of ideal situations. 
And so, it, you know, you had, we didn't have restrictions on, you know, we weren't bound into very limited relationships. We were free to explore the world, travel, get, be, uh, get education, sense of my human rights, individual rights, to live my life in the way I wanted to. My parents had a, a, a certainly a sense of moral propriety, you know, so they, were, they provided a very secure, emotionally secure home life for my sister and myself. They were trustworthy and uh, they were honest people. So I had a, a good kind of social background uh, that uh, in spite of all that, I still managed to suffer. <laughs> So it's, and it, then of course, you know, is it my parents' fault or is it just the nature of this realm? And then going and living in Thailand, training in a Thai forest monastery with Ajahn Chah, there's a very different cultural attitude than the American one. You know, so you're going from this, this, this uh, society uh, from the West Coast, you know, it's very liberal. Washington State, where I was born and grew up, is one of the more liberal states politically and socially in the United States. Lived in, went to university in California, very, you know, where the avant-garde, where things begin, trends, fads, fashions, uh, revolutions, uh, protests, and all the rest. You're free to, you know, the University of California in Berkeley, you could join Trotskyist groups and anything, you know, any kind of, uh, uh, you know, rare, strange political attitude or, or peculiar interest, you could find your métier, your friends within, the, within the, uh, that university in Berkeley. <clears throat> so the, the freedom to explore, investigate, do what you want. But in spite of all that, the, there's still this suffering. By the time I was 30 years old, you know, I'd had occasions, opportunities, had, you know, managed to get things and be successful enough to realize that no matter what, I was basically not happy. I was disappointed. When I was 20, I had great expectations for success in the world, by the time I was 30, I was terribly disappointed, mainly with myself. So that disappointment wasn't due, you know, I couldn't blame that on my parents. So it also went inward, blaming it on, you know, myself, seeing myself in negative terms, be feeling a failure or, or being disappointed or not living up to the ideas that I had when I was 10 years younger. <clears throat> so then the uh, monastic form, monastic life became an option for me uh, in Thailand. So from there on, my life began to move in the right direction. So that was like 45 years ago. 1966. So that's... Uh, <laughs> So the, most of my life has been, you know, this, 
this uh, has been devoted to this investigation of the Buddhist teaching. And not just to, you know, to be a scholar, scholar of Buddhism and, and a critic, but to actually put it into practice, make it work, develop it, reflect from it. <clears throat> and of course, this is uh, the gratitude that one experiences for this opportunity to, to live this life as a human being. And to have such an occasion as uh, to to develop wisdom, to to awaken to Dhamma, to reality itself. <clears throat> In uh, monastic life, say the the samana, what they call a samana. This word samana is a Pali word, Sanskrit word, from India, but it means uh, one who you know the samana tradition in. In Asia, is one of it's like a yogi or a, a human individual that investigates the laws of nature. So Buddhism itself, the Buddhist teaching, is is not about it's not a metaphysical uh, tradition or a theological one. You don't have a, a hierarchy of deities or coming from from conceptualizing uh, heavenly states or or supreme creators. It starts from, uh, you know, the very basic, the very essential teaching is the truth of the suffering, dukkha, which is, isn't uh, metaphysical or anything rare or difficult. We can all relate to that. And no matter how fortunate or unfortunate your life has been. <clears throat> and then the Buddha was was looking at himself, not at, at suffering in terms of some uh, generalized idea of how miserable life is, but really taking this, this dukkha, this suffering, and investigating it, rather than just trying to get rid of it, or blame it on other causes. So the, Buddhism has this unique kind of position in the realm of, of what we call religions, because rather than addressing the spiritual life in the, from the top, it's always from the most ordinary common experience, the most banal uh, experience of, that we share as human individuals is the experience of suffering. And from there on, it, you know, the, through that investigation, you begin to to have insight into the causes and how suffering arises and ceases, how to let go of it, how to recognize non-suffering within the, these human forms. You know, so like old age. Now, being old, old man, you say, the old people, we, we suffer from uh, the limitation of our aging bodies, uh, the the stiffness, the growing stiffness, the problems that arise due to age could be, you know, is that, have I escaped that? You know, being a Buddhist monk, have I escaped physical pain and disease and old age? No, you see, you see those of you who've known me for the past 30 years can see I've certainly gotten older. <laughs> and, uh, and my ability to leap up with Alacrity is, has passed. Now I kind of crawl up on the bench. 
can't climb mountains like I used to. And, uh, but is this suffering? And in the Buddhist terms, no. They say this is just natural, the way conditions change. Human bodies, or any bodies, you know, have a beginning and an ending, whether it's human or animal, insect. It's the, the autumn season now, isn't it? You see the changing uh, uh, from the seasons, from summer to autumn and then to winter. So this, this way of change isn't, uh, is not a, about uh, the suffering of the First Noble Truth. It's just the nature of conditioned phenomena that we have to, that we're experiencing through our bodies, through our senses, through the mind. And then the, the non-suffering is understanding this, not putting it into a context of wanting something, wanting it to be different, but recognizing that in terms of consciousness here and now, what that which we're experiencing is change. The, through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling, this incessant, relentless changingness of conditioned phenomena. So in the Samana life, we, we contemplate this change. And, and as we do, then we, we reflect, we begin to develop a wisdom level of discernment using pure conscious awareness to observe change is, is what we call mindfulness. Sati Panya, Sati Sampachanya, ability to be aware of change. And that awareness then is not something personal or it's not a condition in itself, it's our ability to observe. So it's what, what we can consider pure consciousness that, we, that we're experiencing, but don't notice because we're always blindly operating through the momentum of change, through the conditioning of the mind, through the self-views, through feelings of love and hate, like and dislike. And getting back to William Blake's gratitude is heaven itself, when I began to, when I contemplate like this, you know, I'm not trying to kind of just think positively and, and uh, you know, try to make myself into a grateful person at some ideal. I'd like to be grateful or I should be grateful and then if I'm not, you know, personally grateful enough, I can feel guilty. Or somebody tells me, you should be grateful. And then I feel, and if I'm not feeling grateful, then I feel angry, upset, somebody telling me I should feel something. <laughs> so the personal, personal level is, you know, don't tell me what to do. And uh, the reaction, I should, I should be grateful to my parents but I only feel anger when I think of them. That's one reaction. But this, this uh, Gatanyu, in Pali, Gatanyu Gatawaiti, is, isn't about just trying to, you know, isn't holding to the ideal of gratitude, but it's a real, uh, 
say, intense level of gratitude that comes through reflection. It's not coming from personal preferences or, or from holding on to ideas of what things should be or how anyone should feel. It's coming through the power of observing and witnessing mindfulness, wisdom, and reflecting on the, the you know, the, say, towards the Buddha himself. After all these years as a Buddhist monk, you know, the, the sense of Gatanyu Gatawaiti toward the, the Lord Buddha himself. Long ago I never met the guy. 2,553 years, yeah. <laughs> so, and yet, you know, I've been able to, because of his wisdom and foresight and vision and compassion, then I benefit, benefit now from what he, he uh, set up on a conventional level through the, this tradition uh, that he established in India 2,553 years ago. We're all benefiting from this. And when we think of that and we recognize, and you know, we put it into practice, it's not, not just a, you know, uh, a superficial sense of thanks, but it's a real respect and gratitude for the compassion that the Buddha must have operated from in establishing a teaching that could last for so long a period of time and still be appropriate and useful in a, in a time, in a country like this, so far removed from any kind of influence uh, from its original, from the original society that, that the Buddha lived in. <clears throat> then one's own practice of it, and, and the results of that practice, means that you you know, you, 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 you know that this is, this, you know, this, you have these insights, profound understanding of the, the, the validity of this teaching, the practical use of it, the, the skillfulness of it, because it's not just, uh, you know, aligning yourself with a Theravadan Buddhist party card, but it's through, through your own understanding. You know, not just aligning yourself with some religious sect. Because what if the results of the life, or the results of my life as a human individual, uh, as a Buddhist monk? It's very good. The result is a good result. You know, I'm not disappointed. I'm not fed up or disillusioned with the Buddhist teaching. It's in fact, it's, it's, uh, when I first started, I didn't, wasn't quite sure whether it worked or not. <laughs> you know, was it another uh, interesting Asian philosophy, you know? Uh, that, uh, and, but it didn't, you know, no practical use, just interesting intellectually, or did it actually, would, would, can one do it at this time? You know, would it work? Is it, how do you practice it? How do you, what you do with this teaching. And then, of course, the opportunities I had in Thailand and with a teacher like Ajahn Chah, who, who had that kind of insight, understanding, you know, himself. He, he actually practiced and, 
and realize the, the validity of this teaching through his own use of it. So that is, you know, this is how it, it's handed down from one generation to another. It's a teaching that's passed on. Uh, and and, and the, the teaching itself has never been corrupted. You know, when maybe Buddhist monks, individuals can be corrupted, things like this, but the teaching has never been corrupted. It's just the pure teaching that no doubt the Buddha gave is called his first sermon after enlightenment. So then when I contemplate this, then this Gatanyu, Gatawaiti, manifests. Oh, wonderful. Buddha, really. <laughs> and, then the, and then, of course, going to Thailand and meeting a teacher like Ajahn Chah. You know, I didn't know what I was going. You know, I was just going to Thailand, couldn't speak the language. Thailand's never been a colony of a European power, so in, in the, those days, back in 1966, um, you know, it had... Had very little contact, you know, with it had didn't have the the influence, say, of of uh, British or French uh, that they, that say other Asian countries had. Well, like Burma was was a British colony, and then Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam were French. So the ties were sandwiched in between the French and the British, <laughs> and somehow they managed to stall off the invasion through clever political means. <laughs> uh, but the, the thing is, they never, they didn't have that much influence, you know, in terms of uh, the, using the English language. So it was very, at, at that time, back in the 50s and 60s, the idea of going to Sri Lanka <clears throat> was one option, because they, they'd been a uh, British colony, or Burma. But in 1960, early in 1962, Burma became impossible. You know, they, they didn't want foreigners and they were, this oppressive government took over. So you couldn't, you know, you couldn't get permission to go to Burma. So the obvious one, 1966, was Thailand. Living in Malaysia, then going to Thailand. <laughs> then having the opportunity to meditate as a lay I med started meditation in Bangkok at Wat Mahathat, one of the main temples in Bangkok, one of the old, really old uh, temples there. And uh, that led on to ordination to monastic life. And then with that, is, uh, the support that one receives as a alms mendicant, <clears throat> like we're, we're we're a mendicant order, so this means that we give up our rights to hold money. We, we can't, you know, we, one of our rules, this was Ajahn Chah was very strict about this, so we couldn't have private funds or handle or hold money. So we're, we can't dig in the soil, we can't go and plant cabbages and support ourselves in any way. We're totally, totally, completely dependent on others for the basic necessity. So, as like this this morning, when you offered the the food, the bindabata, the the alms food, this tradition, when we contemplate this every day, you know, of my monastic life, there's been somebody offering food to me. 
whether it's in uh, Thailand, in a very in a poor village, or in Bangkok, or here at Amravati, wherever. Then this this is a sense of the, this person is offering uh, food because it's a an, it's a necessity. You know, you you have uh, we have to eat, and if you don't have money and you can't grow your own food, what do you do? And so the Buddha established uh, this tradition on mendicancy. So we make ourselves completely dependent on the goodness, good-heartedness, kindness of others. And from that, over 45 years of depending on the kindness of others, you know, you realize this sense of katanyu gatawaiti manifests. Because during this 45 years, there's never been any, any lack of the necessities, the requisites, the food, shelter. There's four requisites, food, shelter, something to wear, and medicine for illness. So here in, in England, you know, the um, shelter, there's never been any problem about shelter, food, uh, robes, and um, medicine, National Health Service. <laughs> so in living here in the UK, it's very easy for an alms mendicant. Also, even our experience as Buddhist monks living in a non-Buddhist country, like we, we have discussions, monks get together and talk about going alms round in Berkhamstead. You know, Who's going to give food to a Buddhist monk in Berkhamstead? And But they do. You know, people that don't know anything about Buddhism or... But they, there is that kind of generosity amongst people in this country. We've, you know, monks have gone too long, walked through the English countryside, Scotland, places like that, where there's been that response of generosity. And then that generosity we reflect upon because we're not thinking that you should give me food and we're not demanding it. We're not going around saying, you know, you have to give me a meal. I'm a starving beggar. You know, you, you just, your sense of, of uh, decorum is high. You have this vinaya where you have to conduct yourself in a way that is not annoying, irritating, or intimidating to lay communities. So in this way, then, this seems to generate a kind of respect, interest, curiosity. All these kind of uh, feelings arise in people that may not have a clue of what you're about. But it does generate this sense of interest and then uh, wanting to... It does arouse this, this generous, generous feeling of, of the lay community. So this monastery here was built through donations. In all this, this whole... <laughs> it's all on, on almsgiving, not, not through business, or through intimidating people, or through corruption, <laughs> or through stealing, or lying. <laughs> so this, this, uh, you know, this building here is, is the result of generosity. And so when you, you look at this building, which I, you know, 
really like, and you feel good done you, got away theorizing. Because I didn't have to go around kind of, you know, uh, nagging people or pursuing them and intimidating them into coughing up money for my temple. It just seemed to come from, from that place in individuals, uh, that willingness to offer, make donations for such a, a building to manifest. So then the, the Buddhist samana, the Buddhist monastic, has this sense of katanyu. We develop it. It's part of our life because we, we did intentionally put ourselves into this position of alms mendicancy. So in terms of rights, you know, there's a time where everybody's demanding their rights and yet alms mendicants were giving up our rights. And when I first realized this, it was in Thailand, you know, I thought, I like the idea, I had this kind of romantic idea of being a Buddhist monk, meditating by a stream, writing haiku poetry, and being at peace with the world. And so, you know, I quite moved into the monastic form because on one level I had these kind of romantic illusions about it, kind of beautiful lifestyle. But then it dawned on me after I was in what I'd rarely done, put myself into this position of total dependency. Americans, we're, we're not brought up to be dependent. My parents were. They don't ever depend on anyone else. Make sure you have money in the bank, you have your life insurance, you've got everything ready because if you don't take care of yourself, nobody else will. And so don't, don't be in debt or owe anything to anybody. Make sure that you're independent secure. And then I joined the monastic order in Thailand. What happens? Even food. <laughs> have to go out with an alms bowl and hope somebody puts something into it. <clears throat> but then what's the point of this? Why, how could, why did the Buddha establish a tradition that's lasted so long on such a kind of seemingly uncertain tradition, as a samana tradition, alms mendicancy. And it, it is interesting because it makes you contemplate this, this, that there is this wisdom behind the Buddha's teaching, a kind of vision and understanding of human nature that, that I didn't have when I started this. I was much more cynical, you know, basically we're selfish, our main, you know, characteristic is we're selfish. You know, get everything for yourself. Make sure that you have yours. Me first, my rights, what I think. This is, this is uh, you know, quintessential American inspiration. Be somebody. Don't be a beggar on the street, an alms mendicant going around with an alms bowl, but, you know... Win the prize, win the lottery, have a, be a multimillionaire, ride around in a, in a Cadillac. <laughs> and instead you're walking barefoot uh, with an alms bowl. So it's an interesting, you know, just to, I'm talking like this to, to reflect on the kind of the total difference between worldly values and, and uh, 
this uh, samana life because it, it isn't understood very well in, uh, in the West because it's not really a part of our cultural uh, attitudes or ideals or expectations. So then we, then we train ourselves living within the structures of an ancient discipline. You know, so you're not, in a, we're not New Age tr- trendy types. We're, we come from an ancient tradition that was developed, you know, so long ago that, you know, we, in, in such a different place, different time, different place. But the, the discipline is, is, uh, is itself a tradition that carries this teaching through, you know, it's, a, it's not through, and that's why the teaching has managed to survive without being corrupted or distorted through these years because the, the way it was set up, that it's able to go through the various periods, uh, rise and falls of civilization, kingdoms, political systems. And just in my lifetime, there's no, remember, say, 30, 40 years ago, we thought Buddhism was, you know, on the way out. It seemed to be disappearing. Like in Asia, for example, China was communist, Mongolia was communist. Uh, the, The communists seemed to, you know, they had this view that all religion is, is wrong, is corrupt, is the opiate of the people. There's an attempt to destroy Buddhism. In Mongolia, in 1936, the Stalinist government there uh, actually murdered the whole Sangha of Mongolian Buddhists. They found these mass graves. This was, I was born in 1934. Two years of my life, and then the, you know, they came and they annihilated, you know, tried to destroy Buddhism in Mongolia. It's reviving again. In China also. And, and then, in my own experience, seeing the interest in Buddhist teaching in countries like this, Western world, that, say, 50 years ago, there was very little interest, understanding, or curiosity about it, about Buddhism. And now, you know, it's, it, it has a good public image, there's a lot of interest, there's a plethora of information, books, websites. They have websites where you can have Dharma discussions all over the planet. Give forth your opinion, your view of what Buddhism really is. <laughs> and there's all kinds of good things and not very good things, but it's, it's now no longer just one of those maybe interesting or curious Asian religions. It's it's now in the consciousness is something worthy of respect. And, and people are, uh, many people who would never have thought of it or th- seen the value of it are, are beginning to respect it or maybe take an interest or there's a level of curiosity about what Buddhism really is about. So then this alms mendicant life is the result of it, through our reflections, we reflect on it every day, like reflection on the four requisites. Every day we, we have, we, you know, the shelter we live in, the, the robes we wear, the, the medicine that is, that is allowed us to, for ailments, diseases, and then the food. We reflect that this is uh, 
you know, the sense of you've done, you've got to wait to your results through this reflection because we, we're not demanding that, we don't, we, you know, we don't, we don't say, you should give us the requisites. We can't do that, we can't kind of intimidate you into doing it. But it does, because it does come from this relationship that of respect uh, that the lay people fear, that this, the four requisites are supplied. And so then, through this reflection, then this gatanyu, this gratitude, is the result of that. So reflect on the get, gratitude is not just a, you know, about how you should feel. Uh, or it's not, it's, it, you know, there's that level of it, it's, it's a good idea, you know. You can be grateful, it's recommended. Uh, one can see it as just another, you know, good thing to be doing if you can feel it. But how do you generate gratitude? You know, you can't just convince yourself through willful uh, determination to, to be grateful as a person, but through reflecting on the, on the goodness, the good things that have happened to you in your life. <clears throat> the gratitude that one feels towards one's parents. The fact that they, they did love me. They tried. You know, the father, I was born in the worst part of the Depression in the 1930s. So parents lost everything they had. Had two children right in the midst of a Depression. Of course, I was a baby. I didn't realize what, you know, the suffering they must have felt. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the sense of insecurity that my parents felt after the, through the, that experience of the Depression. And the disappointments. You know, my father, you know, his, his whole professional life was upset. He had to do something he didn't like in order to provide a living for, for my sister and I. Well, I didn't find that out until I was adult myself, didn't really reflect on it. Uh, the sacrifices my parents made just to provide me with food, shelter, clothing, medicine, and, and uh, you know that that then I, I feel this gratitude for that kind of concern, love, care, the sense of sacrifice that they made to see that I had the the, the necessities of life to survive. Then in the monastic form. Putting, a, putting oneself into this alms mendicant role, this position in the society relationship is based on that gratitude of the generosity, goodness of the lay community that uh, provides these, these requisites. That also leads to contentment. And contentment just contemplate contentment. A really contented person, individual. Is that possible? You know, is that, you know, what do you have to do to be content? It's, it's like an idea, an ideal. But the society, you know, we live in a society that is totally averse to contentment. Modern free market Capitalism. The last thing they want you to do is be content. 
the economy will be a wreck. <laughs> and so, you know, everything is about making you discontented, envying, wanting you see something, <clears throat> you know, somebody has a better car than you have, you know, then you want to get a better one than they have. And, and the advertising, the whole, the whole uh, zeitgeist of the age is discontentment, making you envious, jealous, wanting things uh, that you may not really need, but always seeing that the latest, uh, the new, is better than the old. So it's, uh, and this, you know, we, we can't just make ourselves content as a willful act. That comes through reflection, through gratitude. It's not a willful act. It's not an egotistical determination to pretend I'm content. But contentment comes through recognizing the suffering of discontentment. So in, in my experience of monastic life, you know, they <clears throat> living in, uh, I lived in uh, northeast Thailand for 10 years. So that was the, uh, you know, the poor, more, more disadvantaged part of Thailand. And then, you know, my own uh, experience of life was, brought, was being born into city life in America, in a kind of middle class uh, value system of where, you know, luxury is just taken for granted and keeping up with the Joneses, envying and trying to compete with others was part of the cultural conditioning uh, that formed my personality. Then in the monastic life, which was living in, uh, you know, on, this, on, on a basic level where, where electricity or convenience or luxury was not part of the life at all. The, uh, the, the shelter for the night isn't like, you have to, because I'm a Western monk, an American, you should build me a, an American-style cootie with a fridge and air conditioning. <laughs> So, you know, the, the, the expectation is a shelter for the night, you know. Root of a tree gives you a shelter for the night. So it's basic, kind of at the lowest possible level of primitive shelters is the root of a tree. And so I've never really had to do that, just live at the root of a tree. You know, everybody, there's always been, even the poorest places I've lived in, there's been some kind of shelter better than the root of a tree. So then what does that do? It, gratitude arises for that. And then your contentment, you, you, you're not thinking and trying to always get better and improve, but you're content with, with uh, very simple things. Life is very simple, peaceful, contented. And then, then we, we experience the joy and the bliss that comes through this way of reflecting and learning, rather than striving willfully, trying to get to control, manipulate conditions out of fear and out of ignorance. So, I offer this as a reflection for you. It's uh, three o'clock now. And what have we next? Yes. Long Meadow, over the past uh, 25 years or more, 
you know, very kindly and compassionately tried to explain to us the meaning of the word impermanent. However, when we thought of Lampo Sumedho's stay at Amaravati, we always thought it would be a permanent feature in Great Galveston. <laughs> now we know the truth. So we are going to miss your kind smiles, we are going to miss your gentle laughter, and we will always miss your great presence at Amaravati. We are deeply, deeply indebted to you and grateful to you for all what you have extended to us with kindness and compassion over the 20, 20 more years. And today, in gratitude, we like to make this offering in memory of all our parents departed and to bless all our parents living today. And thank you once again and wishing you all the very best of health, peace and contentment in your retirement. Thank you. Thank you. So this Mr. Chandi Pereira and his wife, he's the, he's the initiator of this. He came to me 25 years ago, I think, and suggested this. And uh, so it's... Uh, was a very good suggestion and uh, something that that I felt I really wanted to support and, and kind of hope it continues when I'm gone because it, it is an important reflection for us all. And uh, I will be leaving um, England on the next month, going back after the Katina ceremony here, going back to Thailand. And uh, I've invited uh, Venerable uh, Ajahn Amro to come and take on the duties of the uh, abbot of this monastery, and he's kindly and willingly accepted that position. So, um, uh, just to encourage you to, uh, to uh, you know, to support him and learn from him. He has developed, I've seen him from when he first ordained to the present, so I have great confidence and respect for him and gratitude also that he has uh, willingly taken on this, uh, this position because this is, this is a very big community uh, and uh, it's a big place, you know, so you've got to deal with so many things. It's not a simple little vihara. Uh, it's uh, got so many things duties, responsibilities, meetings, uh, and all the rest that, that has, uh, that is, you know, can be quite uh, demanding. So the Sangha here in England, the monastic Sangha, has all agreed to invite Ajahn Amaro here. So he's here at our, at the, at the Sangha's invitation. And uh, I'm sure... Uh, he will not disappoint you. <laughs> In fact, he'll, he'll probably be much better than I am. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and it is time for me to, uh, <laughs> well, I'm still compass mentis, <laughs> really healthy to, 
to retire and then going uh, Thailand uh, I've always kind of regretted part of me uh, always wanted to live and stay in Asia um, I have this incredible love for Asia that uh, I don't understand myself developed as a child and how I got it I don't know but it's always been with me so, so I never thought that I would have an opportunity to uh, go back and live in Thailand. I'd go back, you know, for short visits over these past years in England, but uh, never thought I would have the occasion to go back and live there. So I'm quite looking forward to it. But there's always a, a sense of, you know, because I've been so involved with this place and the life here in England, that uh, there is a mixture of sadness and gladness. You know, I'm not just happy to go. <laughs> There's a certain joy and prospect of not having duties, responsibilities. I keep telling people, I want to be just like a, an old frog on a lotus leaf. <laughs> Everybody overlooks. But I don't know if that's possible in Thailand. <laughs> I'd be a huge frog on a little lotus leaf. But I'm quite—I'm uh, trying to refrain from committing myself to any kind of uh, commitments to take on duties again. So this is a time for for an old man to. To, uh, for solitude and for reflection rather than for just going on till I drop dead. <laughs> Here in, in, uh, in, in Amaravati for the past few years the uh, monastic song has been very considerate, you know, so the monks here have been very, uh, you know, helpful, supportive of me to, you know, so I don't, you know, they're not always pressuring me or pushing me, giving me a lot of space, so there's nothing, it's not leaving out of, out of any kind of negativity or disappointment here. But just to realize uh, when, when your karmic uh, uh, connection has reached its end and your, that the need for, for me to be here is no longer here. You know, this, it has its own momentum. And that's the good thing about life here is that it isn't based on just me as some kind of figure, you know, and, and then when I'm gone it all falls apart. It has its, its own momentum now. It isn't uh, dependent on me in any way. So that's something to really respect, you know, it gives it a sense it'll, it'll, it has its own power. It's not just the, the, the total kind of uh, sense of once he's gone that's the end of it. It's like the Buddha, you know. When Ananda said, what did we do when the Buddha was dying? What are we going to do without our teacher? And when you're gone, who will take your place? He said, I leave you the Dhamma Vinaya. So that, that's quite significant. He already established the teaching and the tradition, a conventional structure. And that, that's what has the momentum here. It's established as a tradition and the teaching, uh, the pure teaching of the Buddha is, uh, is what is 
is taught what is used here at Amravati. So it it's based on on that power of tradition and momentum that was uh, initiated by the Lord Buddha himself. So uh, anyway, I'll give a blessing for you. Yathari vaha pura vari purenti sakarang eva meva itotinang vetanang uba kapati ecitang batitang dumhang kipa meva samichatu sape burento sangapa yanto banaraso yata manicho diraso yata Sapitio vivachantu, saparoko vinathatumate pavat, vantarayo sukiti kayu kovava, avivatanathilitha nitangutapachayino, chataro damavatanti, ayukwano sukang palang, vantu sabamangalang, Rakantu sabhadevata sambhaputta nupavena satasoti bhavantute bhavantu sabhamankalang rakantu sabhadevata sabhatamma nupavena satasoti bhavantute bhavantu sabhamankalang rakantu sabhadevata Sabha Sankha Nupavena Satasuti Bhavantu Dei.